What's up, everybody? It's Brandon here with the Resimply Podcast, and I want to welcome our guest, Ramon Vasquez. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on and talking real estate today. Why don't you take a couple minutes and introduce yourself and let us know kind of where you're from and, and what you got going on? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm out of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, not originally from here, but this is where my wife is from, so that's how I ended up in the Midwest, you know, met her in California. So made that transition, but this is where we started buying our first rental. And so went from that and transitioned into a full-time investor starting in uh, 2018. Um, and so now this is our primary market and we're also doing a little bit in Wichita and growing that market as well. Awesome. So you were living in California looking to buy rentals, I'm assuming? Yeah, so uh, I, I was uh, active duty military when I moved to California, and then I met my wife, and then we eventually got married several years later, and we both were making good income. I knew eventually I figured out through Bigger Pockets and some other podcasts that like I wanted to start investing in real estate, and that's kind of what led me to figuring out like, oh, okay, it's hard to find a cash flowing asset in Southern California. So I started looking at other markets and naturally I looked at Kansas City since we visited there quite a bit to visit her family and the numbers made sense. So that's kind of how we picked that market. And, you know, even though we wouldn't move there for several years, we would just invest remotely as it seemed like, you know, a bunch of other people were doing it. And if they could do it, I figured I can learn it too. So yeah, well, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the cash flow is a little bit different in California than Kansas City. Yeah. And and one thing cool about Kansas City is you can get some appreciation and you can also there's pockets that are really good for cash flow. So you can kind of buy houses that potentially have both because not all cash flow city or not all cities that rent well, you know, the values don't really go up a ton. Yeah, 100% agree. And it's it's been exaggerated with all the inflation for sure. So like, yeah. yeah, everything that I bought, you know, in, in 18, 19, 20, all that stuff has gone up way more than I think it should have, but you know, that's just, is what it is. And you're right. All of it was cash flowing in the meantime, just because pricing is affordable and you can kind of hit that 1% rule pretty easily. Yeah. That's awesome. And so you started buying remotely. Talk about some of the challenges of finding yeah. Were you were you renovating these? Were you buying turnkey? Like what was the what was the strategy of of out of state investing? Yeah, so I you know I read the the Burr books and that's kind of what I wanted to do initially, and I did get impatient. It's I think that's the hard part about being a virtual investor. You need to build out a really solid team in order to find something that you can add value and then refinance and pull out all if not most of your money. So. You know, while I was looking at those deals, I was looking at just multifamily in general. And the first deal I bought was a turnkey, um, you know, duplex, but it was in a great area. And at the time it was on the MLS too, and I was using an agent. So at the time we ended up paying a little bit over asking, which I was like, dang, this doesn't feel like it's a great deal. <laughs> you know, I look back now, that's one of my favorite assets just because you know, locked in super low interest rates and it's in a great area. I think, you know, you really can't go wrong there if you plan on being a long-term buy and hold investor where you can get in trouble 
is buying in not so great areas where you're speculating a little bit and maybe the cash flow looks better because I've done that. And then you realize all oh, the tenants are not great. And so those properties require a lot more reserves, um, yeah. even with a long-term mindset. Yeah. Cause a, a bad turn can wipe out cash flow for a while on a rental. Yep. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So your first one you bought was turnkey. Did you, did you attempt to try to renovate and do some value add over the next couple of years or most of them kind of fell in that same? Yeah. So the first, um, and they were all duplexes. The first, uh, oh, nice. yeah, the first six I bought and I partnered with some with my mom and obviously my wife, you know, her and I were buying stuff together too. So the last few that we bought were some value add, like I was buying them at a discount, but I was kind of, my plan was to do a long-term burr, like possibly renovated over the next year or two as I got tenants out, increased rents and all that other stuff. Well, yeah. that was like during COVID. And so by the time I, and I'm still kind of working on those a little bit, if I'm being honest, but by the time I got those to where I could refi them, the rates have gone up. So it's almost no point of me refining to try to, you know, replace a 4% interest rate with like a seven and a half or something higher. So right now I'm actively working and seeing if I can get maybe a line of credit on it, which is a little tough because it's multifamily. Um, and so I figured that those are a little bit harder to get a line of credit, but you know, in the meantime, they still cash flow. Okay. Again, it's a, it's a constant struggle with those tenants being replaced, but no, my, yeah, my first, um, yeah, I guess it would be, uh, 12 units or doors, I should say, um, they were mostly turnkey. They had tenants in place and they needed very minor upgrades. Nice. That's, I mean, it's, that can make it a little bit easier being out of state, not having to, yep. you know, do renovations, um, necessarily start screening tenants. Cause you buy a house and it takes four or five months to get it renovated, get it on the market and get it rented out. I mean, that's yep. mortgage payment you're paying. Yeah. And I relied a lot on my property manager too. Which that's, you know, that's a whole nother conversation too. I went, I've been through four property managers now and I only started in 2018. So, you know, not all of them were fired. One of them quit because she ended up selling her business, but you know, it's, it's tough because, you know, you try to go for the cheapest if, if you're like me, when you're getting started to save money and you quickly realize, okay, that's why they only charge 7%. And so it's a constant, you know, growing process and you know, some of them get too big. That's what happened with the next one after that. And they just didn't, you know, they weren't able to fill them as well. And they weren't providing the, the level of service that I think you should provide. And so it's a constant balance. My, my recommendation would be get as many referrals as possible, but also don't be afraid to fire them if they're not doing what you think they should be doing. Yeah, it's one thing I've always found interesting about the property management industry is it's in my opinion and I, and I get it because you only have so much room for cash flow but the lower the rent the less the property manager gets paid and generally yeah. the more difficult the tenant yeah 100%. where where the opposite can happen where you can have a higher price rent usually a better qualified tenant and they make more money mm -hmm. and uh, and so that's always been an interesting balance to kind of see how it how it works with, and I don't know what your averages are, but you know, when I, I have buy and holds in Augusta, Georgia, and they would rent for 800 bucks. So paying somebody nine, 
you know, they're making 80 bucks a month to, to potentially deal with a headache. It, it definitely, because it, it, and then there's a balance. They have to have so many properties to make money. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's an, int I've always found that industry in interesting, the, the kind of way it's all shaped up. So. Yeah. I, I quickly realized that one, I, I needed out of necessity when I was living out of state, but even once I moved here back to where I could self-manage, it just wasn't what I liked and I know it was tough. So I feel for all the property managers, like I, I try to actually give them a lot of slack because it is one of the hardest things I think as a buy and hold investor is good property management. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like here, the minute you go under a thousand dollars a month, the quality of that tenant most likely drops significantly. And then like you said, what they're making isn't a lie. And so they're typically charging you for everything else because they have to cover their costs. You just have to kind of what you're getting into. And I would just be very cautious if somebody's like, oh, I'll manage it for 7% and, you know, take care of everything. Cause I feel like they're cutting corners somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to, yeah. you know, break even. Cause it's not a super profitable business unless like you said, you have a lot of doors and then, then you run the risk that they're too big. Like the company I had that I ended up letting go, they had over a thousand doors and it got just too crazy. Yeah. Um, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing about it, if you build up enough of your own units, um, depending on what you're paying, you can eventually probably hire an employee that only works for you is yeah. one of the cool things. You know, you got to get to enough doors to where you're paying four or $5,000 a month to a property manager. But then at that point you can pay somebody $60,000 a year. And then their only focus is right. door rentals. So that is one of the benefits as you grow as, and I've had a couple of friends that have eventually, once they got to 50, 60, 70 doors as rentals, they just brought that person in house and hired them. So then they have one focus. Yeah, I agree. Cool deal. So you, so you got your stuff or you bought your assets in Kansas city or in California. When, when did you eventually come to Kansas city? And then did you on that move, did you, go full-time investor or were you still had a job in Kansas city? Yeah. So right after the pandemic hit, um, my wife got an opportunity to work for the military in Fort Leavenworth, which is just North of Kansas city. Okay. And so that's when we both, like she had to leave her, her W2, a government job, which we were actually both working at a government job in California. So again, we were both making you know, six figure salaries, you know, had a ton of benefits because of the government. Um, and she's definitely like more conservative as far as risk goes than I am. And so she was just like, I'm not going to leave this job just because of all the benefits. And then she's also in the, in the Navy reserves. And so she got that opportunity. The Navy was going to pay for us to move. We, we just said like, Hey, let's just move and not move back. They'll hold her job. But at the end of the day, when she's like, Hey, I don't want to move back. They're probably going to tell her like, okay, well, you you know, we're going to let your job go. And so she was even comfortable saying, well, I'll find something, I'll make it work. And that's when I, once we got that, that news, I was like, all right, let me go get my license in Kansas city or Kansas and Missouri. And then I could just go be an agent if I can't go full time and just have that to supplement my income. So when we did move, I, you know, I went into that role of like, Hey, let me go be an investor agent. I did, you know, probably, I can't remember now, 20, 20 some plus deals in like six months without a state investors as a brand new agent. But you know, I, I've been an investor and I think that's what made me successful. But then I quickly realized that to be a good agent, like it's a full-time job. And so that was yep. taking me away 
from what I wanted to personally do with my, you know, real estate investing and the company that I, you know, ended up forming a few months prior with one of my partners that I met out of Wichita, um, who was kind of trying to do the same thing as me, become a full-time investor, uh, do some wholesaling, fix and flip, but mostly, you know, build a portfolio. So that, that was a challenge and it took me a while to just be like, Hey, I need to make that leap and just believe in myself that if I put more time into the business, it's going to be a real business instead of trying to be an agent, which I got burnt out because I was servicing way too many out of state clients. And it was frustrating, you know, agents will understand and relate. Like you only have so much control, right? Like at the end of the day, somebody else is making that decision on whether they're going to buy or sell. When you're an investor, you can make those decisions for yourself. Like, will you buy it? If not, you know, move on to the next deal and whatnot. So made that leap about six months later um, and went full time. And again, it's it's easy when you have income coming in from a spouse um, yeah. to make that leap for sure. Or if you have enough, you know, reserves. And we were always savers. That's kind of just been our mentality and why we've been able to purchase real estate. We, we just save a lot of our income. So that also helped too. Like we had a bunch of money saved up. And even though we were buying a new house here, you know, we're like, we'll make it work just because, you know, we know how to save and we know how to live below our means. Yeah. Which is, which is really important for, you know, any business. Um, but especially if, if your primary focus is buy and hold, cause you know, it it can be very cash intensive on repairs or down payments if you're purchasing and things like that. So, so did you, start wholesaling or doing some stuff kind of to have some active income in the real estate space outside of an agent? Yeah, actually I started wholesaling in 2020. So before we even moved, I was virtually wholesaling. Oh, cool. But not not very consistently. It was like, you know, doing one or two deals, uh, you know, a month, maybe less, uh, just depending, because it was kind of, you know, I was still kind of figuring it out. I was cold calling and doing some texting and whatnot. And so that was my, you know, once I bought those duplexes, I was like, I need more capital. And that's when I gave wholesaling, uh, you know, a, a real thought and, 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 and went, you know, completely into it and figuring out, okay, how do you wholesale properly? I joined a mentorship, which is where I met my partner to try to figure out like, how do you do this right? And how do you scale it? And so, you know, once I moved here, I'm doing the agent thing and putting the wholesaling thing kind of on pause or not doing it as well, I should say. Um, and, 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 you know, my partner was also a W2 working full time and he was, you know, we were trying to run this business pretty much part time, um, after, after, you know, our working day or whatnot. And yes. so, you know, fast forward those six months after I was doing that agent stuff full time, I kind of put a, a break on that. Then wasn't super active on it. And we started focusing on that and then we started doing you know two to three deals consistently a month and so you know we would we would we would try to keep what we could but at that point we were building the business so it was putting cash back in so we were wholesaling a lot more and you know eventually you know fast forward to today we're doing a little bit of everything you know still wholesaling to build up that capital and keep the marketing going and then keeping the deals that we like that still cash flow given you know today's market and where interest rates are at and then flipping um the stuff that doesn't cash flow and that's just mostly the best exit to maximize the profit is you know flip the higher end stuff gotcha so so you're mainly you're wholesaling with a goal to just pay for marketing maybe 
give you guys a little bit of pay as far as ownership right. and then anything left over is solely focused on putting towards buy and hold yeah are you buying holding in in both markets or just kansas city specifically right now right now we have yeah everything we hold as a company is in, in kansas city or the metro i we would buy and hold in wichita because we know that market a little bit better now um we just haven't found the right opportunity we've done a, a flip there and a couple other wholesale deals but right now we're still you know looking for those better because again we're trying to hold things in and you know like b minus or better neighborhoods which yeah. can be hard to find stuff that cash flows or even deals that make sense and again the stuff we're holding right now it's a true burr we've gotten to the point where you know we have the right contractors in place we know how to do rehabs we know how to estimate like that took several years to figure out yeah. and so for us we're we're not trying to leave money in a deal like we underwrite all our deals where we have zero or or we're actually getting some money back and it still cash flows and it's in those good areas so those deals are a little bit harder to find um but we have been adding you know around one property a quarter right now is kind of our pace and trying to scale that up but mostly single family which is you know a little bit harder to scale doors just because you got to go find more of them than if you found like you know one apartment building or something like that yeah. but it's what we know and how we market to our to get those wholesale deals. So it's just easy at this point. Yeah, for sure. This I always find this interesting. Every buy and hold investor is a little bit different. Um, are, is your focus to get the houses paid off or a certain percentage of them paid off and leave them paid off? Or is your goal to then maybe pull out a line of credit to then start snowballing the mortgages to get them one of my friends, and the reason I asked, one of my friends in Alabama who built up a portfolio of probably 300 homes said the key was he bought his first one, aggressively paid it off as fast as possible, went and got a line of credit or mortgage on it, then was able to buy two, and then he had two doors paying one mortgage, and then kind of snowballed and, and grew. Is that like what are what's y'all strategy as you as you continue to go? So our strategy is obviously through the Burr method is we're able to leave a decent amount of equity, right? But we're, we are trying to highly leverage our capital just because we can find more opportunities that make sense. And so we're pretty aggressive. And I think that probably goes with the nature of like, we're all under 40. So like we have a longer investment horizon at this yeah. point. So we're not as aggressive as paying them down, but making sure we have cash reserves and they're all cash flowing really well. And then yes, eventually I think we would take out and I mean, we've already applied for some and have some. They're just they're OK. They're not like traditional lines of credit. They're more like commercial ones where you can, you know, use that. And again, we would use that to to fund these rehabs so that we can refinance out and not have to use hard money on the front. And that's kind of something we're working on now very aggressively is how do we replace our hard money with private money or other lines of credit where we can do stuff for cheaper than paying, you know, two, three points and 12% to a hard money lender, which, you know, there's a time and place for those, but yep. it gets expensive and adds up quick. It does. Yeah. And it's, and I think you, I think you're doing it right away is take little pieces away. So I'm primarily a flipper and we used to use hard money for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Now we just use hard money for the purchase. And our goal is to continue to dwindle that away so that yeah. I think we're, we're our our main lender is like twelve point five and two points. Yeah. You know? 
it's not we're at a point now where they they fund 100 purchase 100% rehab so it's really yeah. nice but exactly if you can get it a little bit cheaper or you know kind of start working that way yeah it starts saving money in the long run makes you more aggressive too when you offer which is always like you're always trying to find a competitor especially if you're flipping because there's a you know there's a ton of people trying to do it and yeah. i always wonder like how are you offering so much more than us and again you're either doing it for cheaper than we are or you have access to a lot cheaper capital and that's or you're just you know you're not really good at running your numbers but i like to think a lot of people are at this point that yeah. we compete with because we they've been in the business for a while so yeah that's something that we know you know we've been doing quite a few deals we have a lot of folks who follow us and understand and trust what we're doing and so we just need to tap into that you know money that's out there available and like you said try to cover part of it if not the whole thing when possible yep. so let's talk about the transition do you have any tips for somebody looking to transition you know some stuff that that helps you obviously having a good job and and having yeah. reserves is a benefit but not everybody has that opportunity necessarily so sure. is there any kind of advice or tips you have for that i think for, for me was you have to kind of look into the mirror and figure out like how serious you're going to take this do you feel like it's going to be uh, a business that you know will make you excited for me it was very easy i was making good money not excited and was really bored so i'm like real estate was something i was passionate about so i knew like I wouldn't quit, you know, within two months because I got frustrated. Like for me, I was like, I'm gonna make this work. There's hundreds of people doing it. Um, so if you don't have the benefit of like cash reserves or a spouse that has an income, like figure out what you need to do to cover those basic living expenses so that you're not, you know, for lack of a better word, desperate when you're trying to do this business and make offers and talk to sellers. I think you know, if you come at it from a scarcity mindset because you need a deal today or yesterday, then I think that does impede you. So I, I would figure out like, what, what can I do to supplement that, you know, cost of living that I need for my basic necessities. So it might be, you know, get a job on the side and, and still try to devote, you know, as much time as you can to your real estate business. For me, that's what I was doing. I was doing them in tandem. And I, I could see that if I put more time to it, I was probably going to make more money. Right. And so to me, consistency is a big deal. Um, so making sure you have processes in place to be consistent is huge. And I'm one of those folks that would want to do it for at least six months because I feel like you can do it for a month and get lucky and do a deal really quickly. And then that becomes your expectation. And that's also not realistic, or you could do it for three months and nothing happens. And that's okay. Cause that's, that happens to a lot of folks. Like it took me, almost three months to do my first wholesale deal. And then once you do the first one, you're like, okay, wholesaling is real. It's not something that somebody made up or it's something illegal. Um, so you gotta be consistent and you gotta figure out which strategy makes the most sense for you. If you just like to buy and hold and like your W2 job, like that's perfectly fine too. Like use that, leverage that. I mean, loans are way easier to get when you have a W2 job. I know that from personal experience. So there's, there's pros and cons to each one. Um, yeah. you know, for me it was like, I don't have a ceiling. If I work for myself, that's always been my thing. And I didn't want to have regret looking back. And, and, you know, if I did 20 years with the government and, and I had a pension, sure, I'd be, I'd be fine for the rest of my life, but I probably would be like, Hey, what, what if, right? What if I would have took that leap? So just be consistent, try it for, I think at least six months before you make any 
like rash decisions and figure out what's that one strategy that you want to focus on. Don't, don't try to do multiple strategies. I tried that at one point and it's just very difficult. Like if you really like fix and flip, maybe just try to be a good flipper first before you try to wholesale and, or do buy and holds or whatnot. And I think once you get really good at that, you can make it, you can systematize it before you go on to a different strategy. So I kind of, you know, I went from buy and hold to mostly focusing on wholesaling and then focusing back on, okay, now I can take these wholesale deals and figure out how to, you know, leverage them to get the max profit, whether it be hold them long-term or, or flip them. It's nice to have those options when you wholesale, but I think wholesaling, it's like, I mean, you, you know, it's like a full marketing business in itself. Yeah. And I think folks are like, I'm just going to try wholesaling for a few weeks and see how, and I'm like, no, don't do that. You're going to get frustrated. And yeah. you know, there's plenty of people making way more money than me and they don't, they don't market to any sellers. They just network and buy deals from other wholesalers. So everybody has a place, um, I think in the industry, you just got to figure out what, what fits with you and what makes the most sense. No, I, I, and I agree with you. you, you're really spot on. Like your first as a cold caller or direct mail or anything, literally your first phone call can result in a deal. It, it, yeah. it it's, it's that it, it can be that simple or it can be the complete opposite yeah. where you send thousands of postcards or make thousands of phone calls and they lead to nothing. Yes. And, and so definitely trying to do it for you know, six months or so, and just kind of understanding what the pace of it's like, what it's like, and then focus on your budget. You know, if you, yeah. did you, you started cold calling, is that kind of where you? Yeah, yeah, so it, that's a great point. Like not only your personal living budget, but like your business budget. Like we, yeah. we have progressively gotten bigger. Like we didn't go from like a hundred bucks to $10,000, um, you know, like our overhead now is over 10 grand, but it was gradual, like we were, at 1500 then 3000 like we were cold calling i was cold calling myself um then i met my partner we brought in a va we, you know we leveraged that then we added texting you know it's kind of been layered and we did start with the cheapest forms of marketing because the risk is is lower right like you don't have to blow through ten thousand dollars in like pay-per-click or direct mail ad spend in a month you can use ten thousand dollars over six months if you're doing it yeah. you know yourself or whatnot and so i'm with you like do it slowly and, you know, just put that back into the business if you can. And it, it is a struggle at first because like we weren't pulling money out of the business for, I think, the first year because it was just going right back into more marketing and leveraging other people. And so, um, you know, for us, it was OK because we had other jobs during that first year. And so we, we were OK. Um, if that's not you, you got to figure out, you know, what makes sense. And again, you might also want to pick a market where it's it's more conducive to whatever strategy you're doing right like if you want really big checks and you won't want to do as many deals like i would say don't go to the midwest because the assignment fees are not going to be as high as maybe the coastal markets but understand the coastal markets you, you're more it's more competitive and so you're not going to get as many deals um so some people I've, I've heard, uh, I think it was Lauren Hardy say this, like, do you like to hunt squirrels or elephants? Right. And so that's also yeah. like a personality thing. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, look at your back market if you can, I think it's always easiest when you're local. Um, but then if you want to go virtual, figure out like one where you actually want to hold things long-term, that's probably a good market to start in if you're going to do wholesaling, cause that can lead you to better deals. But for me, 
having more deals consistently is 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 more i guess it's easier for me to predict cash flow and and income for the business that way then you know sure maybe we could do like a sixty thousand dollar deal in socal but maybe is it going to be like once a quarter or is it going to be you know once a month versus doing like four to five deals a month consistently which is kind of where we've gotten to that point and it's a little bit easier to predict cash flow and kind of grow slowly that's kind of been our our motto i think i like the hunting squirrels or elephants i've I've, I haven't heard that one and it, and it, I'm a coastal market. So I live in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. And yeah. it's we, when I first started in the industry, I was in, I was in Augusta, Georgia and two completely different price points. Right. Um, and to your point, the assignment fees in Augusta were a lot smaller, but they were a lot easier to get, you know, I yeah. found deal flow to be more consistent where Charleston generally, if we assign one or flip one or do something with it, there's more profit tied to it, but we don't get as many of them. And so it's balancing that and a, uh, even a $25,000 assignment. Yes. It, it is the proof of concept wholesaling works. It's real. It's not illegal, but that can go really quickly if yeah. it's your only deal and you don't have more things coming in with marketing, with, you know, depending on your own budget to live, whatever's going on, mm-hmm. um, 25 grand doesn't go a long way. Let's talk about how you decide your wholesale from your buy and hold. So you're doing most of your lead gen. Are you mm. still buying from wholesalers or do you pretty much buy just from your own marketing? Um, no, we actually do. We um, we still okay. do kind of all the free stuff that I call like network with agents. We look at wholesale deals. It's just, it's harder for me to pencil a wholesaler deal just because yeah you know, we can get our deals a little bit cheaper, but they still exist, you know, and we, we love to joint venture with wholesalers in our market too. If they maybe have a hard time moving a deal or they need help underwriting and stuff like that. So I guess to your question, like, how do we determine what to do with it? So for us, um, based on the current interest rates and kind of what we're refinancing into, which is a a DSCR type of loan, um, which is based on, you know, debt service and cash flow. Um, we typically what's, what's the so people can understand that may not yeah. have a debt service basically the rent has to cover the mortgage by a certain percentage what what dscr are you seeing or underwriting for yeah right now we um our lender does 1.2 okay so i think that's pretty common for it is yeah for single family so um and then we're getting up you know 75 percent loan to value and you know we can actually do a cash out and the, the rate goes up a little bit you know so we kind of see if there's enough you know meat on the bone there to do a cash out and get some money back um but those rates are like you know they they were hovering in the seven and a half range um you know plus or minus some percentage so for us for us to make it worth it for a cash flow perspective you know it, the minute they have to repair value is like over 240 it just doesn't really make a lot of sense and so the minute we see a property that, you know, and again, we're not taking stuff down that needs like, you know, a six figure rehab. We wholesale yeah. those cause we have the, that opportunity. So we're looking for stuff that's pretty straightforward or if it needs a big rehab, we're buying it super deep. Um, like we have one under contract now at 25 um, and the house is worth 140, but it, it needs like 65 or 70, I think. And so like, that's not a typical uh, deal for us. Typically our rehabs are like under 60, um they're usually like you know the stuff that's easy to rent three twos 
uh, with a garage preferably and they usually rent for you know 12 50 plus but again the rents don't usually match or make sense with the after repair values once you get over 240 so that's kind of been our sweet spot which again puts us in like b minus neighborhoods uh, maybe c plus like those kind of fringe neighborhoods which we're okay with um, because yeah. we understand and and actually within our business one of our partners actually does property management so we have that luxury of like being more hands-on instead of leveraging that to somebody else so with that being said if the property is like 350 is adapter repair value we're most likely going to flip that or wholesale it to somebody else who wants to flip it and then again if it's if it's turnkey and we really can't pull our money out because we can't buy it steep enough we'll wholesale those as well if we can or you know we were selling some of those to hedge funds a year ago when they were buying like crazy yeah. um so we try to look at the exit strategy that makes sense and see what's the best return for our investment you know obviously we can't hold everything because um we don't we don't want to kill the the wholesale business and not have yeah. a bunch of assignments coming in even though we we could assign it to ourselves in theory um but in every deal that doesn't necessarily make sense so we have a very specific criteria so a lot of the stuff that we get under contract doesn't meet it and so it just naturally leads to us flipping and wholesaling more anyway and again puts us back to that you know we're buying one every quarter or so that we're holding two things on that a it's amazing that your average rehab is under 60. we can't even yeah. touch we can't even touch a sixty thousand dollar rehab it feels like down here oh, man. um i have like a cosmetic one with new roof and hvac that's running me like 75 right now okay it's 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 crazy is um, it what's the uh if i can ask what's the age of the property because i feel like that has a huge this one might be in the 90s oh really okay it's it's a it's in a planned neighborhood it's, it's a vinyl track sure. home but it um just our cost of labor it down That's here true. right is, is is skyrocketing yeah um but uh yeah so pretty much like when i see a wholesaler send a deal through and it's thirty thousand dollar renovation um, i can tell you're not renovating in charleston because there's very few yeah. who can who are doing a quality product but yeah. um the other the thing i want to talk about you have a very specific criteria or buy box and i think that's really important for people to understand that's how you can prevent yourself from getting in trouble right is is if it checks all the boxes that you know and understand and have experience with yes there's still risk in every asset you ever buy and every tenant you put in the house but you increase your likelihood of success by following your or competency on kind of what's what you guys need to own. Yeah, I agree. And, and the reason I asked about age was um, like I personally, I think, you know, one of my partners is more open to it. Like I like things built after 1950 just because yeah. there's more there's more unknowns once you go to those older properties. So that's not like I don't I don't know that, you know, one of my partners was buying before we, you know, became a business. So I don't know that she owns anything pre-1945 maybe uh, but typically you know we're everything else we're looking at is newer than that and again yeah. it's like it goes back to like those areas are usually rougher because those bright those homes are not well maintained and that's not where we're trying to hold stuff in i mean we wholesale there all the time or you can even do a flip in the right neighborhood um but you're right like those bigger rehabs are not something we target because the risk is higher 
you know, a, a 5% increase in a, you know, $100,000 rehab is more significant than like a $30,000 yeah. rehab. So, um, but yeah, we are, we are lucky in the Midwest for our cost of labor to be probably significantly cheaper than, uh, than the coastal markets. But, you know, then again, there's plenty of houses here where you can get upside down really quick as a seller, even if they're like, Hey, I'll give you my house for 10 K because it needs so much work that those values, you know, like that neighborhood might be a $110,000 neighborhood. And so there's a lot yeah. of deals that are just not worth messing with. And we've stopped targeting certain parts of the KC Metro just because, you know, when those after repair values are sub 130, like it's just, it's unfortunate, but it doesn't make a lot of sense for an investor to go in there unless there's some kind of government um, incentive to go in there. Or if you're like, I mean, I'm not even gonna say this is a good strategy, but there's plenty of people who, you know, take the slumlord strategy and they barely do any rehabs, which is not something I would ever condone, but like that right. happens all the time. And those people may make those houses work. And, you know, we've been on the other side buying from them when they realize that's a terrible idea yeah. and they have to sell their house for super cheap or whatnot. But it's also the houses that we've seen, like the worst living conditions. So again, like you said, a very specific buy criteria is is really useful and it's hard because when you're getting started you don't want to like throw any deals out the door um or eliminate anything that could be a potential deal but it just makes it so much easier your risk is so much lower when you do have a specific one yeah and your buy criteria is for what you buy personally you right. don't have to necessarily everybody has different buy criteria people yeah. buy different stuff you know if you can find buyers that like certain houses and are okay with these certain things that's yeah. their criteria. That's not your job to worry about that, which is important to understand. Yeah, the ARVs, yeah, so us, I don't know that we, I'm trying to think, I don't even know that we have houses that really exist under 200 here at all anymore. Right. Even in the, even unless it's 600 square feet, maybe like a one one in rough shape. I mean, it's it's right. pretty, um, and then, but fortunately most of our homes are built 1950s and newer, um, yeah. unless you go into the historic parts like downtown Charleston. But fortunately there, you're talking 800 plus, you know, thousand dollar ARV. So you do, you can have the money to renovate them, but they are probably year long projects and you have historical societies yeah. and like your paint's gotta be approved. Your wood's yeah. gotta be approved. Your it's, it's a, um, it can take two months just to get a permit. It's been, and that's part of knowing your market. You know, you can, you, we see virtual wholesalers coming to Charleston all the time and and try to, and they do, and it's in every market. You'll see it in Kansas City, you'll see it everywhere. You know, they come into this area and they send you a house and you're like, there's no way it's worth that or there's no way your renovation's even close. And I appreciate yeah. you pulling a house <laughs> from a mile away that might have sold for something, but it, it's not, it's not even, it's not even close to yeah. it. Probably one of the most important things you can do when you're starting out is like understanding value and it, it is difficult when you're virtual and don't really understand the neighborhoods or maybe don't even have access. Like in, in Kansas, it's not in disclosure. So it's actually pretty hard to comp unless you have MLS access. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Like don't, don't ignore comps like, you know, within a half mile, just because there's a pretty nice one a mile away. And um, that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, doing your back market as, as much as you can, because I know people who are successful in San Diego, LA, and that's, probably one of the most competitive markets, you know, in the country. So I, I think it's possible everywhere. It just may take you a little bit longer, but again, the, the fees are going to be bigger 
in those competitive markets. But being there uh, makes a huge difference for us. Like meeting with sellers is kind of how, you know, that's our competitive advantage for sure yeah. over a virtual guy. But even a local, you know, wholesaler, like whoever has the best appointment and can connect with the seller the most is probably going to get that deal. And, you know, if you can solve their problems, like, you know, that's the name of the game if you're going direct to seller. Um, you know, if you're using a team and buying from agents, like that's very possible. That agent can definitely do a lot of that heavy lifting for you uh, because they're going to understand the neighborhood and whatnot. But yeah, virtually wholesaling is tough. I would, I would, I would highly recommend you partner with a local wholesaler or investor, and then, you know, you can have that partnership go as long as you, you want until you feel comfortable. Like that's how we, that's actually, we, we went virtual into Indianapolis for a little bit and we've kind of pulled it back just because it was strictly a wholesale market. And so it's, it's harder to get opportunities. It makes sense because you're constantly having to go, you know, the lowest possible offer so you can still make a profit. Um, but again, we relied on somebody else because all the tools we had access to was still kind of difficult to pinpoint value. A lot of times, you know, you find these comps and they would tell you like, oh, no, that's an anomaly because of X, Y, Z. And it's probably easier to figure out if you had that MLS access. So I like partnering with other folks when I get deals outside of our market, because we still get those deals on accident when we're marketing. And it just makes you um, a lot more confident, in my opinion, when you're making those offers to make sure you're not messing it up or having to go back for a price reduction, because that's another thing we don't like to do, you know, canceling wow. or asking for price reductions. So, you know, not everybody operates that way, but that's how we operate. Like we have a pretty low cancellation rate and, and a pretty low, you know, price reduction, even though, you know, we, we tell them there's an inspection period and all that other stuff. And, you know, the typical stuff that you deal with, a you know, MLS property, but we don't drag it out as long. We do everything pretty short and condensed. Like I think most uh, wholesalers do. So you just got to figure it out and be able to make those offers confidently. Yeah. It's man, that phone call. Thankfully we haven't done it a bunch either in our business. The phone call of having to cancel a property property or a price reduction, I think is one of the most gut-wrenching ones that I ever have to make. It is. Yeah. Especially if you know you've they've gone down the line of of potentially moving or have, you know, depending on why they're selling the home, they've kind of come at peace with it. Yeah. And then to have it pulled from under them or changed is is not enjoyable yeah i agree and and if you do this long enough you have like probably a brand and a social media presence and so like we're constantly building that up and you know we yeah. don't want sellers to go on there and be like hey they just came back and loadballed me after their inspection period or something like that and i i do think there's some mentors and gurus or whatever you want to call them coaches out there that that teach that like just get on their contract and then figure out where you need it after your your buyers walk the property you know, I'm sure we've lost deals because we didn't take that approach, but I think we're okay with it. Cause at the end of the day, like our reputation, especially in the Midwest, I feel like reputation and your word means a lot. Not saying that it doesn't in like California, but you're, it's a smaller market. And so like you mentioned some folks that, you know, in Kansas city before we started recording and I know them and you probably know a bunch of others too. And so you don't want your name to be out there like, oh, Ramon, he's the guy that just goes out there and locks deals up way too high. And then there's retrades later. And, you know, that to me probably means more than making a bunch of money. And um, I'm always on, I'm actually not the greatest at negotiating with sellers because 
I'm always trying to give them the best deal. And so yeah. I've had to replace myself in some of those conversations with one of my partners, just because they can be a little bit more detached because maybe they didn't meet with the seller or whatnot. And so while we're still trying to run a profitable business, like you said, nobody wants to make those awkward phone calls when you're supposed to be providing, you know, convenience, speed and, and certainty. And now you're trying to, um, and again, I don't, I don't think it's bad when you do it really fast and, and, and at the beginning, yeah. but I know plenty of people that have 30 day inspection windows and they're closing on the 31st day. And I'm like, you got to change that. Like you don't yeah. want to do that to sellers. It's just not a good look. Yeah. And, and it, it's also different. I've, I've contracted a house telling them it's contingent. So we have crawl spaces here. Yeah. I know you guys have basements are big things. So our crawl spaces are a big thing. And yeah. I have lost, I remember there was one stretch last year, we lost like $38,000 in crawl space inspections, uh, selling homes. And yeah. we thought we had remedied some stuff and they found more stuff. And it just, it, see, it was like back to back to back. Right. And so I have gotten to the point where I'm comfortable going in a crawl space. I also have my my crawl space company will come do it. But there are certain homes, you know, if if I have a price and they have a price and we figure out something in between, I tell them this is based on my your crawl space checking out the way that it should. I was like, because yeah. I I that's one thing that I I, I know what roofs, HVACs, plumbing electrical, I know what all that stuff costs. Anytime I think a crawl space is good, I've been hit for seven, eight, nine thousand dollars. And if you have those conversations up front, it's completely different when the seller, when you call them and say, hey, this credible crawl space company went into your house, the repairs are gonna be $9,000, could you have X, Y, and Z? How do we make this work now? So, yeah. and, that, and that's different than streaming them along for 30 days. And then what's cool about doing what you're supposed to do, so you kind of mentioned this a little earlier, there are people who do no marketing and just kind of referrals network. That's how our business is. So mm -hmm. we, we do no direct to seller marketing. Nice. Um, we've, we've built a, uh, a brand for ourselves. And then I've wrapped my truck, my wife's truck and my 16 foot trailer. And we continuously get deals from it. I just got one a couple weeks ago, just sitting in a parking lot. A guy walked up to me and then two days later was contracted. Nice. But because of that and doing what we're supposed to do, those people have led to referrals. And that's, we're starting to see a chain of, hey, you bought my friend's house six months ago. They said everything went really smoothly. They told me to call you here. Our dumpster guy gives us referrals. Our, yeah. you know, everybody now knows and knows that we'll close. And so they call us before they call anybody else, which has made a big, a big change as well. Yeah, no, I, those are the best deals. Like. Nothing better than getting a free deal because, uh, yeah. you know, it makes everything a little bit less stressful. And yeah, I agree. And and you're, you you would be the buyers that I would want to connect with if I was a wholesaler in that market because you do what you say you're going to do. Like I'd rather sell a deal to somebody I know is going to perform and assign it and not and know they're not going to come back like a day before closing and be like, I got no funding and now I have to figure out an extension than make 5K more with some guy that I've never heard of. So. Like that's, that's, yeah, that's a huge deal. And again, if you're going to do this long-term, you got to think about your reputation. I mean, there's plenty of people who are still in the business and they have a bad reputation and, you know, they're probably doing deals too, but you're not going to get, like you said, all those referrals, all those free leads, if you have a bad reputation. 
Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, again, it just goes back to just do it, do it the right way in the beginning and it will um, benefit you long-term in your business, especially as you grow. You know, if you think about it as a one-off transactional business, then it's a little bit different, but if it's something, you know, you've been doing it now for five, six years, I think we've been doing it full-time July 8. I mean, as you grow it, it, it's something that, you know, can, can benefit for a long time. Well, Ramon, I appreciate it, man. I had a good conversation with you. I don't know if there's anything else you want to leave the audience, but I thought you gave some really good information on people transitioning, buy and hold and things like that. No, I appreciate it. I'm happy to connect with anyone. Um, I get a lot of DMs on Instagram about like getting started or like, what should I do with X amount of money? Um, if you're in the Kansas City market, definitely love to connect with you. If you're thinking of investing out of state or even if you're local, probably the best way to, to get hold of me is probably on Instagram, which my uh, Instagram handle is Ramon V underscore REI. And yeah, I'm pleasure being on here. And um, obviously a big fan of, of, of Resimply and, and that software. We use it every day in our business. And we have a saying like, if, if it's not a Resimply, it probably didn't happen. Um, <laughs> That's so awesome. like, yeah, so I mean, a, a, a good CRM is huge for any business for sure. Um, but again, we didn't have Resimply day one, right? Like everybody yeah. starts somewhere and I feel like, you know, if you're like me, you're like slow and steady, you just constantly grow. Um, but you know, as, as you would say, like, um, the, the possibilities are kind of endless in real estate. There's a ton of way to make money. You know, there's a ton of extra strategies. My biggest piece of advice is just focus on one. Yeah. Take action. I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it is, but, and that's what Sherrod, so the founder of Resimply, and we'll end it on this. He, you know, we talk all the time and, and what's his favorite book. What's the one thing that he talks about? And it's the one thing like that's, that's his, one of his superpowers is being able to just dial in one thing at a time. And I've been a Resimply user since its beginning, um, since I oh, met Sherrod nice. five years ago. Yeah. So I've been with it since the very beginning. And, uh, and because of that focus on, on that, it's allowed it to grow to where it is now. And people's business will do the same thing by just having focus. So awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. You guys connect with, uh, Ramon in Kansas city. And if you're ever up there, uh, go eat some barbecue as well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs>